Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we are celebrating the 100 years of Disney because Disney has kicked off their celebration of 100 years of Disney. Yeah. So we're going to look back at some of the more memorable moments in the Disney company, at least things we think are memorable, and kind of talk through like major milestones, how it impacted the company, uh, and how... And I think like culture as a whole, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I, I still am kind of questioning. I know you asked this question before, that they're kicking off their celebration in January. I was just going to say that. I think it's October 16th. I looked it up earlier today. It was act- is actually their anniversary of 100 years. I was so just going to bring still- this up. Like, you know, like eight months yeah. or whatever I, I, away. I, I was going to say that this. Number out. I was actually just going to say this, that, you know, Disney's kicking off the 100th anniversary. I have no idea why they're doing it now, though, why they picked January 27th, whenever the 100th anniversary of the company is in October. I didn't take enough time. I thought about it. This has been bugging me all week, but I still didn't take enough time to actually look up to see if there's a reason. So if anybody out there knows, I would love to hear because it seems odd they're doing this. Yeah, I tried to look this up on Google a couple hours ago and it it really didn't spit out any results. I saw some places acknowledged that it's in October, but nobody said why they're choosing the start. You did more research than, you did more January. research than me. But yeah, the only thing I can think of is they want to start the hundredth now so they have a full year and a half maybe, just kind of like they did like an eighteen month thing for Walt Disney World for their fiftieth. That they're planning kind of like a year and a half celebration, almost two years, that they'll run it from a year of October because in 2025, that's going to be the 70th anniversary of Disneyland. So if they run this for roughly a year and a half, two years, (laughs) they'll end this and maybe have like a six-month buffer just to roll right into Disneyland 70th. So that's my thought. But you actually did some research and couldn't find any answers. So I'm going to run with that for now. (laughs) Well, now it has me wondering... In January, next January, when they do the races, are we going to get like special uh, saying this as if hoping that, you know, we get into the race, but are we going to get special hundredth anniversary medals? Because now I want to sign up for the dopey again, but I can't possibly get that much time off of work unless I quit. So yeah, I bet you. uh, Yeah, I bet you all the race like marathon weekend and then the race is coming back at Disneyland. I bet you they tie into the hundredth somehow. Oh man, I really want to do it again now. All right, well we'll we'll talk some more about uh the the Disney company as a whole here in a little bit. But before we get into that, let's cover the Disney news. So uh over Walt Disney World, they announced an opening date for the Rodeo Roundup Barbecue. That's the new restaurant over in Toy Story Land. We have an official date. It's opening March 23rd. They also released um, some items of the menu. So it's all barbecue themed. The food looks really good. I like the Forky cupcakes. <laughs> I thought those were really cool. They're you know, just cupcakes, but they have like a little Forky on top of them. Um, but overall, it looks really good. I think if you're a fan of barbecue, I think uh, the food looks great. I think it's going to be a, a great addition to Toy Story Land. It'll be nice to have another restaurant there. Um, we kind of joked about this before, though. It basically looks like it's the queue of Toy Story Mania. Yeah. So the theming isn't necessarily anything like unique, um, at least from the initial photos. Um, but it looks like it'll be kind of solid overall. Yeah, I, I think that Toy Story Landing, the theme is, the theming there is just so excellent. To yeah, it's begin one of the better with. lands they've done. Yeah, so I mean, I think it would be hard for them to make something that's even more standout because it is pretty standout in and of itself. But yeah, I think that this will be a really awesome addition. So yeah, I'm excited to see it open up. It is interesting because you mentioned Toy Story Land uh, is very well themed. I mean, it looks great visually. And it's a it's an interesting note because I imagine they did not spend 
anywhere near as much money on Toy Story Land as they did on, I know not as much as they did on Galaxy's Edge because they spent like a billion dollars over there, but even Pandora. And I would say that it is on par with those two other lands in terms of visual theming and things. So I think it's an interesting thing to note that Disney does not have to spend a billion dollars to make a great land, that they can do this if they focus on kind of the right aesthetics and and kind of the right things, that they could do this, and I think they should try to do this, and that way we could have more kind of mini lands like this that are very highly themed. Right. And I think we'll we'll go more into this when we talk about Universal, because I know this is definitely a point we want to kind of touch on when we do an episode about that. But speaking of Disney... Uh, speaking of Toy Story Land, I just saw somewhere on the on Instagram this week that Andy's footprints are on the ground in Toy Story Land, which I don't think I've ever actually noticed myself. Because there's so many people there, you can't see them. But yeah, <laughs> they're they're to scale, so they're basically what his footprint would look like if you were a toy. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. I mean, just those little details that you miss, um, and Disney hides them all over the place. I know the the Millennium Falcon has a little millennium falcon underneath it that you can find so I, yeah again those were a couple posts that i saw this week um so I, it's just it's just cool that the the level of detail they go in all right and then uh, over at disneyland uh, mickey minnie's runaway railway opened up uh this past weekend the queue is absolutely incredible it is the el capitune theater so it's all themed like a movie theater so they have movie props in there. They actually made Mickey-shaped popcorn kernels. They're not real popcorn that you can eat, um, but kind of in the popcorn machine in there. Uh, They are Mickey-shaped popcorn kernels. Uh, It's absolutely incredible. It makes me so mad because, again, Disneyland is getting (laughs) a much better version of something than Walt Disney World has. The ride is essentially the same. There are two kind of extended sequences in between scenes um, but not really anything too significantly different but the queue looks amazing the other thing uh, is even the monorail is incredible over Mm -hmm. in disneyland the 100th anniversary monorail with the platinum shimmer on it Uh, it is extremely frustrating as somebody who goes to walt disney world all the time why disneyland gets all the best stuff they do and they got baymax in their nighttime show and baymax looks incredible and he has like little rockets shooting out of his feet like as a person that, you know, considers their home park Disney World, it is so frustrating because it's like Disney World does get like little copies and pastes of some of the really successful and nice rides from other places. But Disney World always gets like a dressed up version but of it. But even when they copy and paste backwards, they copy and pasted Mickey and yeah, Minnie's from true. Hollywood Studios to Disneyland. And they're like, you know what? The right. ride's cool. Let's make this queue incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it looks great. Uh, you know, we, we, we joke, but it, Disneyland really does get all the, the best stuff. I, I don't know why. But yeah, it, it looks great. So that, that opened. It did open on a virtual queue. They did announce that Tron, we called it. So pat ourselves on the back there that Tron will be opening in a virtual queue um, whenever that opens. So we, we kind of saw that coming. Uh, but Mickey Minis was on a virtual queue as well. The other thing over at Disneyland, and this is kind of continuing some of the bigger changes that we talked about a few weeks ago of them offering more days at a lower ticket price, uh, not having to pay for parking, things like that. They actually decreased the price in Galaxy's Edge of Savi's lightsabers and the droids. So a few months ago, those prices were increased. Now they've reversed that. So the lightsabers are back down to $219 
and the droids are back down to $99, which is a much better price point for those droids. I think the increase took it up to like 125 130 Now, this was announced at Disneyland. I don't know if Walt Disney World prices uh, are reduced as well. I imagine they're going to be. Um, but this is, like again, another step in the right direction. We talked about you know a few weeks ago with Bob Iger coming back or maybe a month or so ago. Does he really care about the theme parks? Is he really focused on this? The one thing he has mentioned is he, he has been kind of vocal about the fact that he thinks the theme parks are getting too expensive for families and consumers. And he was kind of outspoken about the price increases. And I think you see that in everything they've done so far. Free parking now at Walt Disney World at, at the resorts, um, you know, more tickets available at Disneyland with the lowest ticket prices, offering free uh, photos on rides. Now this decrease in uh, lightsabers and droids. I mean, it's it's crazy to think we're living in a time where Disney's decreasing prices. So I think I kind of take back what I said that maybe he doesn't care about the theme parks because they're making a lot of positive changes. And I'm excited to see what the next year gives us uh, in terms of other stuff. I think kind of anything's potentially on the table now. If people were saying, you know, <laughs> hey, get rid of reservations, bring back park hopping, get rid of, you know, Genie Plus, free fast passes. I think kind of anything's on the table at this point. If they're dropping prices for stuff, who knows what they're going to do next? Build an elephant graveyard, roller coaster, and animal kingdom. Well, I think that's the <laughs> next thing. I mean, you know, everything they're doing now is, I think, just trying to get goodwill with the fans. And again, it's obviously they're losing money because it stuff's cheaper, but it is cheaper than spending hundreds of millions of dollars on new attractions. So there's kind yeah. of two ways to get fans back in. One, make them happy by saying, hey, droids cost $30 less and, yeah. and parking's free. Um, and that's going to bring people in and make people very happy. Or you can spend $300 million on a new ride that's going to take you the pace they're five going, five to, to 10 do. years to build. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that what's the shame is when Disney raises prices, you see that everywhere. Disneyland raises their prices again. But it is really frustrating. Like people in the Disney community know that, you know, prices have been decreased, but I don't, you don't see the articles coming out as much about the positive news that they are decreasing. And I think that that is, that is an absolute missed opportunity because people don't need, I, I really hate how news always focuses on negative stuff. I think that this is a really positive change that I'm sure there's a lot of people who said, well, we can't go to Disney World anymore that don't actually realize that the prices are going down because again, they don't listen to our podcast. These are people that, you know, maybe they're going to go one time to Disney World so they can take their kids. They're not people like, in quote, air quotes, in the know. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I mean, this is the first price decrease. I mean, with the ticket sales and stuff, it was offering more days at a lower price. So I guess that is a price decrease on, on those days. I think the next big thing will be whenever it comes up for, you know, every year they increased ticket prices or at least they have increased ticket prices on an annual basis if this year do they hold steady do they say hey we're not going to increase ticket prices we're, we're going to hold them and again then that kind of becomes a way of well it's, it's breaking the cycle of we're just going to constantly increase ticket prices uh, every single year uh, you know like death taxes and disney ticket price increases you know <laughs> do, do they kind of hold that line there and i think something like that i think if they decrease ticket prices that would be huge news if they go, okay, we're actually going to lower them uh, this year. But I think that's probably the next uh, you know, 
big hurdle. We'll see. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to mention uh, is a Disney patent uh, that blog Mickey mentioned. And this is a patent around uh, head-mounted displays for costume characters to wear. So the, the application of this is basically if you're in a uh, costumed character, you have very little visibility uh, in terms of what you can see. So you wear, uh, a, I guess, like a VR headset, AR uh, augmented reality headset, something like that. And then there's cameras on the costume and kind of in the meet and greet that give you full visibility and and kind of a better uh, range of view. And I think it's a, a really interesting patent because it could potentially help elevate character interactions because mm -hmm. they'll be able to see guests better. Those characters can potentially be more mobile yeah. if they can see their surroundings better. Um, so I think it's an interesting patent and it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of what happens with this. I almost wonder if this is also kind of tied into those new giant exoskeleton characters that they have. They have that, right. that Hulk in his nano suit. They're, you know, very big kind of puffy costumes and they're larger than life characters, which makes it I think even harder to see and navigate in those. So if you add something like this with that larger than life character, I think you get some uh, really cool interactions. Right. I mean, I, I can imagine that there's a lot of characters besides that that could really benefit from that. For example, you know, Hades, when we were, when we did the race, there was a Hades character and he was really tall. And I have to imagine being able to move around in that suit was pretty awful. He did have to move really slowly um, because we were there for the, like the character exchange both, both times we got our pictures taken with them and yeah you can't I could tell like it was it was difficult for the cast member um in the suit but yeah I think that this would be a really ma major improvement probably also really important for safety you know nice for them and potentially less uh risk for injury no for sure all right so let's move on to our main topic so again just kind of talking about the Walt Disney Company, the past 100 years, kind of 100 years of magic here. Yeah, like a um, big sweeping view. Yeah, and, and kind of some of the like high points of the company. And again, I think focusing on the points that had the biggest impact either on the company as a whole, culturally, um, because they're kind of intertwined to a certain extent. Right. And if you wanted to do more of a deep dive and found out, found out more about the company and kind of what they've done over the years, check out our Disney decades series, because we actually go more in depth into certain uh, date ranges, you know, the twenties, the thirties, the forties, and we've gone all the way up to the 2020s, 2020s aren't over. So we didn't do that yet. All right, so I, I want to start with the Laugh-O-Gram Studios and the failure of that, that, that going bankrupt, because I think that is one of the keystone points in the story of the Walt Disney Company. There, there's a, a few we'll, we'll kind of talk about on this episode, but I think that is the first one because the Laugh-O-Gram Studios was the animation studio that Walt had started in uh, Kansas City before Disney. And he was creating animated shorts uh, with that and, and other films. And that is what he was kind of doing. He wanted to be an animator. You know, he wanted to make movies. And this is how he was doing it. And eventually, they ran into financial troubles. That studio went bankrupt right as he was starting to make the Alice comedies. Mm -hmm. So he had started making those, hoping to kind of save the studio. But the studio went bankrupt. 
And because that studio went bankrupt, he then decided to move out to California where his brother Roy was Mm -hmm. and start the Disney Brothers uh, studio, which Roy kind of said, it should just be Walt Disney. (laughs) Like, again, that's it's something Roy, like he's always kind of been behind the scenes. But even in that aspect, it's like he doesn't need to be Disney Brothers. He knew Walt was kind of the the leading man here. But if Laugh-O-Gram Studios would have succeeded, I, I don't think we wouldn't have... Walt Disney Studios like we, we wouldn't be in the same place now obviously you know Walt would have still excelled and I'm sure he would have made his movies and different things but he was going on a different trajectory with those and I and I think if that would have succeeded you know the company today it would be a very different world right I mean you figure he left Kansas City you know like close to his home and he went out to LA where he was able to establish more connections out there. So it's a completely different, you know, instead of being a small t- town business that maybe if some people, you know, he grew some fans that he would get more of a cult following. He goes out to LA and he's able to really get these connections and start to, you know, find financing for his various projects and and really kind of dream even bigger than he could have ever done in Kansas City. Well, I think that's another big thing is is he went out there, Roy was out there and Roy joined him. Mm-hmm. So Roy wasn't in Laughagram Studios. And again, Walt's always been the dreamer. Roy's been the guy that's found the money to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I think without having Roy, I mean, Disney would have failed. The Walt Disney Company would have failed multiple times throughout yeah. its history. Uh, and Roy, yeah, you he know, really doesn't helped. get enough credit, I don't think. Yeah. And, and so I think, but I don't think he really wanted it either. Right. And, and I think so. If, if Walt, if Laughagram Studios had succeeded longer, Walt was on his own. Who knows if he would have been able to keep it up? I mean, would maybe Roy have joined him? Maybe not. And so would he have run into financing troubles like he did at Disney, but he didn't have somebody that could kind of help make that money work, go out, raise funds, uh, and things like that. And then, you know, maybe Laugh-O-Gram Studios lasts a few decades and then kind of fizzles out. So really interesting. So I think that's kind of the first, you know, real big point right at the start of the company. So kind of going a little hand in hand with that initial failure, Walt also had another hard lesson that he learned early on. And this was when he lost the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, who, you know, was his sort of initial star character that he created. And well, it was, I mean, that's what, when he created Disney, it was like, Hey, we, we need a character. Mm-hmm. We, we need, we you need know. basically a spokesman sort right. of, you know, right. And so they created Oswald and, and they made Oswald cartoons. And I think they made something like 40 or 50 cartoons in the first year for Oswald. So some insane number uh, in a year. And then the next year, their distributor said, um, we don't want to pay you anymore and essentially hired most of the animators who are working on the Oswald cartoons. They hired them away from Disney to produce them themselves. And right, Disney because they owned the rights, yeah. not Disney. So Disney made the mistake of not copywriting Oswald to his name, but the distributor had the rights. So he, it, there was nothing he could do. Exactly. So so you're right. He he kind of learned that lesson early on. And I think it's interesting, you know, here um, because it, it, there's kind of two things that that impacted the company. One was learning that lesson of making sure you own your characters, making sure yeah. you own your IP. And Disney does that better than I think anybody has, right. knowing the power of IP and how to and how to leverage that. And so Walt, like you said, er, 
learned that early on. I think it was around like 1928, 1929, mm-hmm. yeah, 1928. when when he lost Oswald. So you know, five years, five six years into the company's history, uh, because yeah, he the distributor owned it and not him. Uh, but then also because he lost Oswald, he was kind of in the market for a new spokesperson. <laughs> yeah, he was he was hard pressed to have somebody else step into those you know footprints, and so that's why we have Mickey Mouse, and. You know, whether the, how true this story is or not, I've seen it. I tried to actually fact check this on the Internet and I saw this story appear in a few different places. But I mean, I I don't know how true it is, but I guess that uh, Walt kind of said that he got the inspiration for Mickey Mouse because he used to have uh, mice that would gather in his wastebasket in Kansas City. And he had one, like, he, and he would put them in, like, little cages. They were pretty much domesticated. And he had one that he, like, really liked. And that's sort of where the inspiration for Mickey Mouse came from. I think that's a beautiful story. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to stick with it. But, yeah, I think that this is really cool. And, again, to me, this demonstrates how much of a thought leader Walt was. Because I always, you know, ever since I've been a kid, I was a kid and I started watching Steve Irwin. This is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I promise it it relates. But, you know, he kind of taught you to value the animals that nobody really liked. And I feel like Walt looked at this mouse, whereas most people probably saw mice as pests. He looked at it and really was able to see it for what it is. I mean, mice are cute. (laughs) Like they're very, very adorable. I know that they are pests and they can have diseases or whatever, but it wasn't like Walt was like, this thing might give me rabies. He was like, this is, you know, my friend. And he was able to see that potential in that character and see past maybe that probably reputation that that it had and then he created this monster of a figure like I mean Mickey Mouse is a public figure and I would argue he has more notoriety than almost all celebrities combined like everyone knows who Mickey Mouse is but you might not know who the president of the United States is or who Kim Kardashian is I mean nobody's gonna know who Kim Kardashian is globally right but nobody's gonna know who Kim is everybody knows Kim Kardashian yeah but if she was if she was a hundred years ago she was alive a hundred years ago you know she's like a vampire or whatever people wouldn't know her today but Mickey Mouse has been around for over a hundred years and people know exactly who he is globally right because he's he's been alive he's an icon he's He's a cultural 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 icon icon. right yeah you're right unless you're a vampire you're not gonna live long enough for people to know you exactly so mickey so is mickey mouse a vampire then is that what you're saying um maybe i think the reason why mickey is so popular is again going back to disney with ip very early on they licensed out their intellectual property so very early on in the life of mickey mouse um somebody reached out to walt i think they wanted to put mickey on like a pencil case is i think (laughs) what it was and I think they offered Walt something like three hundred dollars, and Walt needed the money because he, he needed the money yeah, constantly he, he needed, early in the he in needed the, the money. Yeah. So he said sure, and that was that. You know, very kind of small transaction is what started this whole merchandising machine that that Disney did because again, Walt needed the money. It was a lucrative business. People wanted to put Mickey Mouse and these other characters on now everything. And so, again, it's it's interesting because he had this character. He learned his lesson to make sure he owns the rights to this character. And then early on saw the power of licensing it and merchandise. And I don't think that's something, you know, again, in the 30s, people were thinking about. People mm-hmm. weren't thinking, you know, I need to create this. And then, you know, it was more like we create a, a, an animated short 
and then we sell it. And that's the value of it. You know, yeah. he saw the value of creating a character, creating stories that people want to come back to, putting it on things people want. So yeah, pencil cases and lunch boxes and shirts and everything like that. And kind of just building this machine, which then, you know, by the time television came, you know, Walt Disney was the go-to guy for TV. And that's how he funded Disneyland because yeah. people needed content for TV and who better than Walt Disney because everybody had grown up on Mickey Mouse. Everybody had grown up on these characters. To your point, globally, people knew him because Mickey was on everything. And Walt saw it as, one, I'll get my park. Two, it's better exposure. So it's going to sell more merchandise. Like, like he, he saw that, that the parks can sell the merch and, and the TV can sell the parks and the merch. And like, I think he saw how like, it all connected. Know, that corporate synergy of how everything kind of feeds into the machine that he was trying to create. And something else that, you know, just really impressive about him is just that he could see, it was like he owned a crystal ball. Like he, he's Madame Leota. Like he could see and do things that people weren't really doing at the time and see that they, that these things would drive sales, these things would drive popularity. And so he was able to kind of, you know, forge the way sort of in this merchandising and, and business. And it helped him to grow his dreams. You know, he didn't start with, he started with the animation studios. And once he proved that that could work, then he's like, well, I want to make a theme park. And everyone told him he was crazy and he was going to fail. So, I mean, I'm getting a little ahead of, ahead yeah, of us. Yeah, but, that, but that's the thing. I mean, he, he truly was a visionary and it is interesting because he basically had a string of successes. He definitely had setbacks. You know, He had a string of failures that led to those successes too, which right. is so impressive. But, but as, as he got going, I mean, to your point, he, he was this visionary and he saw things that other people didn't see and he kind of talked people into doing things that they thought were impossible or didn't make sense and they ended up working. So, I mean, he definitely had, you know, movies failed, uh, you know, early on and then, you know, later on they kind of caught on. But, like, he did things with... Uh, you know, made one of the first cartoons with synchronized sound with Steamboat Willie in, in, in 1928. He created an entirely new sound system for movie theaters, which was kind of like an early precursor to like surround sound and like Dolby surround sound. Mm -hmm. They called it Fanta sound and they made it for Fantasia uh, when that came out in 1940. But again, you know, he went from, you know, silent films to synchronized sound. So not just, you know, sound, it was synchronized to the movie. And then very shortly after he's like, Hey, we need to improve the sound quality. And he kind of talked a lot of these theaters into spending a lot of money for the synchronized mm -hmm. sound because once it came out, it became so popular, the theaters were kind of forced into doing it because everybody's like, we, we need to go hear this incredible sound, you know, with Fantasia and kind of the orchestra and just the quality uh, of the, the, the sound in that film made, you know, this new sound system you know, kind of a must. But even before that, I mean, even with like the Alice comedies we were talking about, he was doing live action animated hybrid movies, right. you know, with these Alice comedies. And and he was one of, I mean, he wasn't the first to do so. That's attributed to being Jay Stewart Blackton in 1900. Um, there's some really cool, actually, you can still find this online. But yeah, he did this in 1924 and he's bringing in like a real human girl into this animated world where she's interacting with a cat. Um, it's just, it's very kind of, different and um you know interesting how he was able to incorporate that and pop i think probably popular popularize it more yeah and even with just the animated films 
Uh, you know, again, it's at a time where people see cartoons and animation as for children. Mm-hmm. Walt saw it as, no, these films can be as great as live action films and push that medium forward and develop new techniques on how they film animation so that you can kind of get that parallax effect with the background and the foreground and and push that medium forward. And I think that's the reason why you you watch these animated films, even the early ones. Now, maybe the stories are a little bit light, you know, something like but, a Snow White. It's just, you know, 10 minutes of dancing and stuff like that. <laughs> but... But the animation of it and the quality of it is still incredible today. Yeah. Um, those those early ones and and even as you know you get later on like the early '90s and things like Beauty and the Beast, kind of was one of the first movies to do 3D animation and it hold, and it holds up today. Like yeah, the ballroom scene in particular yeah. that's that's where it is and you can see where the columns they don't yeah. they are not. 2d they are three-dimensional and it really creates a, a really awesome experience that what that's what makes that movie look so good or even something like cinderella going back of like that transition scene like like something like that holds up so yeah it's it's amazing because he was it was always trying to push it forward and he never settled for oh this is just a kid's film or something like that to, to kind of keep the the techniques moving forward just kind of going back to Snow White for a second, even the fact that that movie was made is an absolute miracle because they ran out of financing about halfway through and it was a really painstaking process to make it because they were hand animating like every single cell. People had to draw all of that because they didn't have the technology to, you know, move the characters. So every single one was almost like a like a flip book. I'm, I'm and, kind of imagining And that was as. the first full length feature animated film too so i mean that's also why it was incredibly expensive because that was the first full-length film disney done and they you know underestimated how much it was going to cost and the level of effort it was going to take to do that right and so you know the the real kind of story behind this is just the fact that walt had to go and look and for financing so he could finish the um so he could finish the film because he had what was really great. He had great raw footage. And so he went around with this footage and convinced people to finance him in Hollywood so that he could grow his company. I basically, I feel like without Snow White and Walt's tenacity there, we would not have the Disney company as we do today. We wouldn't be celebrating the hundredth anniversary of Disney because there would be no Disney. Yeah, and again, and that movie paid off. I mean, that movie did it incredibly well at the box office. It, it made a lot of money. And again, kind of going back to it's amazing, kind of the string of successes that he had. And that's one of them where, yeah, he convinced people this full-length animated f- film was going to work, and it did work. And then so that kind of paved the way for the other you know feature films. The, the last thing I, I want to say about kind of Disney under Walt's tenure is the the birth of Imagineering. Um, And this is just another kind of example of Walt's vision uh, and just kind of, again, with Imagineering moving the company forward. But I think one thing that's amazing and not really talked a lot about with Imagineering is when Imagineering was invented, there were no theme parks. Like this, this was a completely new concept. They're, you know, they were building Disneyland. They were building this theme park. There's something new. Nobody had ever done it. So there weren't degrees in how to design theme parks. <laughs> there weren't, you know, college classes in theme park design and things like that. And, that sounds like a great class that I want to take right now, yeah. though. And, and so, you know, what he did was is he took 
the best people from the animation studio. He didn't care if you had a background in industrial design or set design to an extent. Like he, he took the, the, the most creative people he knew, the people that knew how to animate and draw because he realized it's about dreaming big and about kind of just being creative. And, you know, he, he kind of took that and said, okay, I think these skills will relate and we'll kind of figure the rest of it out. And, and they did. And it's amazing. Like some of these early Imagineers, if you look at their, you know, kind of resumes, it was like, okay, they worked on Snow White and they worked on Fantasia and then they built a Matterhorn, you know, something like crazy <laughs> like that. It's like, how do you go from animated, animating movies to figuring out how to design and build a roller coaster? And it's amazing because, you know, I feel like in today's age, if you don't have a the background, education. not even an education, but like, it's like, hey, I want to go get a job here. Well, you need experience doing this. Well, how am I ever going to get experience if you don't hire me? Right. You know, now obviously imagining things like building things are, are much more specialized, but it's incredible that again, just that vision of if I just get the best people, they're going to figure it out and make it work. And and again, just kind of invented an entire theme park industry and invented an entire career to the point where now Imagineering is a career. And I'm sure there are college classes on it and degrees <laughs> that you can get kind of in theme park design. You know, just kind of make a statement about that. I am, I mean, I really do believe in education. I think education education's great, obviously. But I do think there's something to be said for giving creative people, people who have the will and the desire to make something better, giving them the opportunity there, because not only are you getting somebody who has the will, you know, if somebody has the will to be good at something, they're, they're going to figure it out. Like, I mean, I, as long as they, they can back up what they say, I mean, obviously they would have to have something that show that they can turn their creativity into a real workable something. I mean, doesn't matter what it is, but I do think that nowadays we are somewhat lacking that, you know, you have to have, you know, this class and this class or this particular thing, like you were saying, to prove that you can do it. But again, I do think that that almost sows the fact that Walt was willing to believe in these people. It sows a sort of um, loyalty in the people that he hired, too, because they realize and recognize that. Walt believed in them. And so they were willing to elevate themselves almost past their potentials because they knew that they're, they weren't the only ones who believed in them, themselves. And so they could kind of accelerate their growth to a point that it's, it's almost mind boggling to us today. No, t totally. It, it is, a, it is amazing. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about famous Imagineers and, you know, Joe Rohde, you know, Tony Baxter, uh, more recent ones and, and some of the original ones. But I think just the birth of Imagineering in general and just, again, the impact just that had. I mean, take out the Disney company, but to your point of just how that came to be of, yeah, just you believe in somebody and just, you're right, the loyalty they had. They wanted to make it work because, you know, it was an exciting thing. Creative people like to like to problem solve and figure it out. And then also, mm -hmm. yeah, that loyalty of like, Hey, Walt believes in me. Yeah. We're going to make this thing work. We, we believe in this dream and just how that's kind of I mean, perpetuated just... like through the company. It, it It's amazing. And I'm like, I feel like there could be so much just about that, that start 
uh, of Imagineering, the birth of Imagineering that I don't feel like it's talked about a lot. I mean, it forges a very strong bond. Uh, it would it would create this sort of family feeling because everyone has this common goal and common vision. And so that gives them a basis to operate off of that puts them on a level playing field where they they kind of feel very intricately connected. And I think that 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 is just a really cool, intimate thing that not a lot of people get to experience, you know, that level of connection with your coworkers. No, I, I, I totally agree. So moving on, so some other areas of the company, I think some other interesting points, you know, past Walt's tenure there. So I think a, a, another big area is Michael Eisner and the expansion of the 90s. So when Michael Eisner came in, he kind of took the company that was a little bit stagnant and really transformed it and I, without him, we would not have the Walt Disney World being the vacation destination that it is today. He really came in with a developer's mindset. You know, he's the one that, that built Hollywood Studios. He's the one that expanded into Europe. He's the one that said, we need to build all these hotels because we want people to come here. We want them to stay. Animal Kingdom was under him. And so he really expanded Disney in the 90s, and they kind of did that off the back of the golden age of Disney, the rebirth of animation. And that's an interesting thing, too, of just how the company has changed throughout the years on what really funnels the growth of the company. So early on, obviously, it was Mickey Mouse and animation because that's all really the company did. You know, Then they started getting into merchandise sales, which helped. And then once Disneyland came, that's really what helped fund the company. Disneyland yeah. was extremely successful. And, I, and that's, even up to today, I mean, theme parks are a huge financial contributor to the Disney company. They are. And, and I think, you know, but even with that, like, you know, Disneyland obviously was the driving factor early on. And that really helped because, you know, a lot of those animated movies around that time maybe didn't do as well as the early ones at the box office, and they kind of built off of that. But then, like, in the 90s, you have the golden age of Disney, the rebirth of animation, and that kind of helped fund the theme parks because people were excited about Beauty and the Beast. So now they wanted to go see Beauty and the Beast in the theme parks, and they yeah. liked the Lion King, so they wanted to see something at the Lion King in the theme parks, and then they wanted to buy merchandise. And so, like, merchandise sales kind of took over. And then, you know, with the acquisition of like ABC and ESPN in the 90s, ESPN really drove profitability for the company for a few decades. And I don't know that people really realize that of, you know, TV and especially live sports, that kind of boom that happened in the early 2000s really helped the companies, especially at a time when uh, with like the recession and things like that, that people weren't traveling to the theme parks as much. Disney kind of hit a rough patch in animation mo in animated movies um, after the golden age there. That TV really helped it. And now what's interesting is I'm not sure what's driving the company because I think they want it to be streaming, but streaming is not profitable yet. The theme parks are obviously making a lot of money because they are charging a lot of money. Everything's very expensive, but they're not necessarily reinvesting a ton in that like we've talked mm -hmm. about and so it'll be interesting to see like it doesn't seem like that's going to be sustainable at this point the box office things have changed with covid that people aren't going to the box office as much so disney is at this point where it's kind of in flux now of i don't think they have a clear vision on what is going to be the most profitable driving factor that's going to kind of keep this company moving over the next decade here um, because it seems like all their kind of go-to stuff has some sort of headwind 
um, that could potentially derail their plans. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a scary thought, and I didn't really want to think really think about going here, but it is interesting to think, you know, the bigger and more massive of a business you get, the harder you might fall. And it is kind of like that scary thought of, okay, well, they have all of these companies kind of underneath the Disney umbrella. And so if one of them doesn't kind of pop out, I feel like for a while it was Marvel, right? Like I feel like people, you know, they were having huge smash box office hits. But as you were saying, with COVID, people aren't going to the movie theater as much. I still feel like Marvel pulls in quite a bit. But yeah, it is kind of like who is driving that financial success of the company so that everyone kind of gets to play i don't that's sort yeah, of yeah and, and, and the problem is you know really again the theme parks are making money but that's basically just funding all the losses for streaming and and to your point yeah as they grew you know eisner through the 90s grew the company uh, and Iger kind of expanded it through ip acquisition spending billions of dollars on pixar and marvel star wars and and fox most recently but it is kind of this double-edged sword because especially with fox they spent 70 billion dollars on it and so yeah it's it's a large amount of money. So now you have to make even more money back to kind of justify that. And so it is, it is this thing that, you know, the company grew so rapidly in the nineties and the two thousands, 2010s through just theme park growth and acquisitions and IP that, yeah, now it's it's kind of interesting to see of where are they going to point this? And I think that's why Bob Iger's back. It's, you know, a big thing of his is okay. Strategically, where's this company going to go over the next, 10 20 30 years because 100 years i yeah, want to think about 100, 100 years. years because uh, they are they're they're in flux and I, I feel like they need kind of a solid direction um to, they need to really a captain jack on. sparrow too no they don't need captain jack sparrow <laughs> they will he will the ship. he'll he'll drive them right into the rocks in the ocean don't <laughs> don't give captain jack uh the helm of the ship there he is the worst pirate i've ever heard of but you have heard of him <laughs> uh but yeah so it's interesting yeah 100 years in you know kind of what got them here is not necessarily what's going to maybe get them the next hundred years um, without potentially some changes. So we just kind of wanted to end here with just thinking about what are ways that like Walt Disney and the Disney company in general have, how have they really impacted our culture and, and everything. And I think that some of, you know, his big quotes that he are attributed to him, you know, if you can dream it, you can do it that's the real trouble with the world. Too many people grow up, they forget. And then a third one is just everyone falls down. Getting back up is how you learn to walk. Those different ideas, I think, are kind of ingrained in our culture now where it's just like, you know, if you work hard, it's kind of, you can do whatever you want. If you fail, you can pick yourself back up and learn from it. And then just in another kind of in general, you know, on our culture, I'm not saying Walt Disney was the inventor of this, but Back in the 18, 1900s, children were being financial contributors to their households and they didn't have childhood like we think of it today. And I think that that he was part of that changing narrative of, you know, creating this childhood programming where kids and adults can sit down together, both enjoy a movie because he wasn't just creating it for the kids. And so this has kind of pushed us forward where you are able to sit down with your children or sit down yourself as an adult and just really enjoy this media that's animated and, you know, learn from it or enjoy it or sing along with it. But also there are some deeper themes involved with it as well, almost like an, you know, like the old grim fairy tales, but spruced up and not nearly as dark. Um, But I think that Disney's really pushed forward that 
that medium of just children's programming and and culturally just brought that to the forefront and made us pay more attention to it. Definitely. And, and like we've kind of talked about this whole episode, the, the hundred years of Disney and, and all these things kind of had to go right. You know, if anything went differently, I don't think we'd be here. And I think the world would be a completely different place because the company might not have existed uh, and, and things. But, but yeah, like the whole hundred years of just, I think, such a positive impact kind of on our culture overall. Yeah, it is. You know, th- what you kind of piggybacking off of what you just said thinking about a multiverse in which Walt Disney failed and, you know, stayed nope, not going to think about it. We're just going <laughs> to stop there. That's it. We're not going to think about that. We're not going to talk about it. So that wraps up the show for this week. Uh, I want to thank everybody again for listening. If you've not done so, please leave us a rating or a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Tell a friend, tell a coworker, uh, tell anybody. It really helps. We really appreciate it. I was going to say, tell your dog. Tell your dog. Have your dog listen to <laughs> Dogs subscribe to podcasts now. Um, it really helps. Uh, and we really appreciate it. Uh, and Leave a positive review. There you go. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, lo- looking forward to, to seeing what Disney has for the next hundred years. Thanks for letting us your ears. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you here next Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs>